From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, August 7th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. A staid British bank is accused of laundering billions for Iran. The case is exposing tensions between American regulators and British bankers. The executive said, you expletive Americans, who are you to tell us, the rest of the world, that we're not going to deal with Iranians? Also today, Chinese soul-searching about Olympic gold. More and more people in China realize it doesn't really matter how many medals you've got. And Greek authorities round up 6,000 suspected illegal immigrants. Those stories coming up. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. It's been a summer of shame for British banks in America and elsewhere. The latest scandal involves a bank that had prided itself on its boring image. That bank is standard chartered. At one point today, it dropped a quarter of its value on London's stock exchange. That's because a New York state regulator accused the bank of colluding with Iran on money laundering. Tom Braithwaite is the U.S. banking editor for the Financial Times. He's been following this story pretty closely. So break it down for us, Tom. What are U.S. authorities accusing London-based standard chartered of doing? They're essentially saying that over a period of years, Standard Chartered conducted $250 billion of transactions with Iranian entities. And to avoid detection from American authorities, they stripped out the codes from the money transfers that would have identified Iranian banks. So they were saying that that Standard Chartered hid some 60,000 secret transactions. You said with Iranian entities. Does that mean the government or non-government entities? It's the Iranian Central Bank and other uh, Iranian state-owned banks that are are in question here. Okay. So what did the bank, uh, meaning Standard Chartered, gain out of this, out of doing this? Well, essentially, it gained, the uh, accusation is, hundreds of millions of dollars in fees just for processing these transactions. And, I mean, this is fairly normal sort of money transfers that go around the world every day. Uh, and they have to go through New York whenever they're U.S. dollar denominated. So that's where it touches on the U.S. There's, there's no other real uh, American connection other than the fact it's a, it's a dollar transaction passing through New York. Passing through New York, uh, to which the U.S. says, look, Standard Chartered's actions uh, left the U.S. vulnerable to terrorists, weapons dealers, drug kings, and corrupt regimes. How would or how could this British bank's transactions with Iranian entities leave America more vulnerable to terrorism or drug and weapons traders? Essentially, they're saying, look, if you disguise transactions for sanctioned Iranian entities, who knows what they could be leading to? Who knows what that money is paying for? How legit an accusation is that? I think it's a stretch at this stage, but I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I think one interesting thing here is we've got a fairly little known New York uh, regulator pursuing this action. 
the FBI, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury are, are also involved. But the the most sort of potent allegations and the way they've been framed in very uh, juicy, splashy terms has come from the uh, New York State Department of Financial Services. And what's Standard Charter's response to all of this? I think initially it was taken aback. Standard Charter has been in negotiations with uh, authorities for uh, quite some time over this, and they were not expecting uh, this to come out of the blue yesterday. Standard Charter ultimately says it strongly rejects the portrayal of facts uh, in the order from the regulator, and uh, it looks like they're going to vigorously defend themselves, which is unusual in this sort of case. There's even more colorful language being brought to light now in a report from U.S. regulators on these charges. That The report includes some emails and conversations among Standard Chartered staff. It describes one particular exchange between an unnamed London-based bank director who was warned by an American colleague about the problematic nature of dealing with Iran. Do you know about that email and what was said? It was, you know, contained an expletive and the executive said, you expletive Americans, who are you to tell us, the rest of the world, that we're not going to deal with Iranians? So when he, and I think it is he, writes, who are you to tell us and the rest of the world what to do, what's behind that? He's essentially bridling at some of what he would see as officious U.S. action outside these shores and that's his belief that it is not the business of American agencies to be regulating activity between Iran and a European bank. But, you know, the counter argument to that is, well, it uses dollars, it passes through New York. So that's that's why U.S. officials have the right to pursue this sort of action. What could be the upshot of this for the bank? Could it be booted out of the U.S.? I mean, that's the threat from the regulator. They said, you turn up next week and you explain to us why you should be allowed to keep your New York banking license. And uh, that's going to be a major moment for the bank and the regulator. An alternative would be a hefty fine, I assume. That's typically how this sort of action has ended up. And various banks, Credit Suisse, for example, ABN AMRO, the Dutch bank, have all paid uh, large fines to settle this type of action. This really is is an escalation in the threat level to banks by saying we could even kick you out of New York. Tom Braithwaite, U.S. Banking Editor for the Financial Times. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This bank scandal underscores how intertwined Europe and the U.S. are on economic issues. That's especially true of Europe's debt crisis. The financial troubles over there can have a direct impact over here. As the world's Jason Margolis reports, some parts of America are feeling it more than others. Every state has natural trading partners. Texas sends a lot of stuff to neighboring Mexico. Michigan favors Canada. The state of Washington likes to send its products across the Pacific. And we in New England have always been part of the Atlantic economy. That's Andre Mayer with the organization Associated Industries of Massachusetts. The Atlantic economy trades a lot of high-tech gadgets back and forth, computers and electronics, aviation equipment, and pharmaceutical devices. It's not just trade. Mayer points out that Europe is also heavily invested in New England companies. Major banks here are European-owned. The supermarket Stop and Shop is Dutch-owned. And European companies have started buying up Boston-area biotechs. And as a result, we are more sensitively affected by events in Europe than the country as a whole. If there's a financial meltdown, the euro collapses and all that, uh, everybody's going to feel it. But if Europe avoids that and has only a mild recession, most of the U.S. won't feel that much at all, but we'll feel it much more strongly here. The question is, 
How strongly? It's hard to say. Trade statistics provide a good big-picture snapshot, but can't tell you everything. And the latest data are a few months old. I called several companies with deep European connections to try and see how things are going right now, but I couldn't get much information. Andre Mayer wasn't surprised to hear this. One of the issues is that companies are much more ready to talk about good news than bad news. And if we're looking at a, a slowdown, they shy off from talking about it. We've got this, um, this big bio-conference over at the uh, convention center. I spent a morning at the biotech conference, wandering around, trying to speak with local companies about how the European economy is affecting them. I basically got blown off. I wish the head of our business was here. I'm really not the right person to do it. Could you come back? Are you around all day? He's just running to a meeting. He's actually very late. for a. One person did have some time to speak with me, Mike Sullivan. He's vice president of operations for a small company, Maine Biotechnology Services. The company is based in Portland, but they have clients throughout the world. I asked him how the economic crisis in Europe is affecting his company. He said it's slowing down research and development. This kind of paused people, and that is kind of delayed projects. Still, Sullivan says those delays from European customers have had only a minimal impact on the company's bottom line. He says they haven't had layoffs or anything like that. The impact of the European economy is slowing down. I think for us, it's, it's always a little bit you know, subservient to, to the U.S. New England states might rely heavily on European trade, but that trade still only accounts for a fraction of the region's overall economic activity. Still, economist Ross Gattel says a weakened Europe makes it harder for the regional economy to get going. He's the vice president and forecast manager for the New England Economic Partnership. And Gattel says there's not much that can be done about Europe's problems from over here. I don't think there's you know anything one individual company could do or one individual state could do. I mean, it's even... You know, questionable what the U.S. or President Obama could do to really affect the European economy. A lot of the firms in New England that do have significant uh, exports are just tracking those markets, trying to diversify into uh, growing areas, maybe into Brazil and stronger economies that are outside Europe. Companies from across the nation are doing just that. But it's trickier here in New England. The stuff we make tends to be very expensive. Again, Andre Mayer. It's high-end, state-of-the-art stuff. Otherwise, you can't compete. You can't compete manufacturing commodity product here in New England. It can be done cheaper in South Carolina or Texas or Malaysia or wherever. So our markets have been places with money. Namely, places like Europe. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis in Boston. We're going to take a moment now to remember a powerful and sometimes combative voice from the world of literature and arts criticism. Australian-born Robert Hughes died yesterday in New York after a long illness. He was 74. He spent three decades as art critic for Time magazine. It was a tenure marked by his frequent mocking of the contemporary art market. Isn't it a miracle what so much money and so little ability can produce? Just extraordinary. That's Hughes in his 2008 documentary called The Mona Lisa Curse. He's speaking about a 35-foot-tall bronze statue called The Virgin Mother by Damien Hurst. The statue reveals the insides of a pregnant woman. You know, when I look at a thing like this, I realize that 
so much of art, not all of it, thank God, but a lot of it, has just become a kind of cruddy game to the self-aggrandizement of the rich and the ignorant. It is a kind of bad but useful business. Hughes also liked to say, quote, the new job of art is to sit on the wall and get more expensive. Hughes was one of the most influential art critics of his generation. One fan of his outspoken style wrote in an online tribute today that Hughes, quote, dared to say that the emperor was naked. Hughes studied art and architecture at the University of Sydney. Art criticism was initially a sideline of his, a means to support his own painting and writing. Hughes's career took off after he was recruited by Time magazine and moved to New York. In 1980, a BBC television series about the history of modern art called The Shock of the New helped make Robert Hughes a household name beyond the world of art. The skyscrapers of New York City are still, for most people, one of the great emblems of modernity. But one of the major architects of the 20th century, Le Corbusier, thought otherwise. He called this city a tragic hedgehog. Any New Yorker knows what Corbu meant. He hated its contrast, its medieval dirt and its medieval inequalities of class. And he wanted to abolish the distance between the streets down here and the spires up there. He had a vision of New York as a possible, though flawed, utopia. New Yorkers didn't take that seriously then. Today, they still don't. Robert Hughes was a New Yorker himself, but he never forgot where he came from. In his 1987 book, The Fatal Shore, Hughes gave a lengthy account of the European colonization of Australia. It came out at a time when Australians were looking more closely at their history. It won Hughes praise in Australia and abroad. During a visit to Australia in 1999, Hughes was in a car accident. He was seriously injured, never fully recovered. In recent years, Robert Hughes appeared in the spotlight less and less, but he continued to write. His final book, Rome, was released last year. Fewer Chinese criticizing their Olympic athletes who failed to get the gold. The softer tone coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Here's how one Greek official describes the rationale behind the roundup of some 6,000 suspected illegal immigrants in Greece. He said, what's happening now is the greatest invasion of Greece ever. The country is being lost. More than a quarter of the suspects who were rounded up were arrested this weekend and sent to holding centers. Greek officials say that they will be deported. The world's Clark Boyd has reported from Greece numerous times in the past year to tell us about the situation there. You were there in June to cover the Greek elections, Clark. I know you spoke with a lot of voters. What did they tell you about their concerns about immigration? Well, they said it was one of the number one issues uh, that they were voting on. Um, you know, Greece is a country that has experienced a lot uh, of immigration, a lot of illegal immigration. They, they estimate 100,000 people a year immigrate there illegally. Um, and I think that with the added stresses of the financial situation there, uh, that uh, immigrants are being blamed for a lot of things. They're being blamed for taking Greek jobs. They're being blamed for the rise in the crime rate. Uh, and so, you know, uh, n- not only far-right voters that I talked to were concerned about 
uh, immigrants, but people from all political parties. This has all played into the rise of a far-right party in Greece. It's called Golden Dawn. You met some of the members of Golden Dawn. Yeah, I was speaking to some some of their younger voters on, on election day, and, and this was their big thing. Their number one thing was, we need to get the immigrants off the streets of Athens. They're the ones who are who are ruining everything, and they, they send all this money back to their country of origin, and none of it stays here in Greece. And does that party, as you say, it only represents 7% of, or at least in the last polling, it represented 7% of, of the electorate. Does the um, uh, does it seem to be gaining any steam now? Well, Lisa, I think I think everybody's trying to tap into this sentiment for political gain at this point. This this recent this roundup this past weekend, which ironically enough was named after the Greek god of hospitality. Who is that Greek god of hospitality? <laughs> Zeus Zeus Xenios. But anyway, this obviously was coordinated by the government. Uh, Golden Dawn may be in the parliament, but they don't have any you know they don't have any members in the administration. So I think that there's this sense that all the parties in Greece right now see that immigration is a problem. They all want to prove that they're doing something about it. And in fact, Golden Dawn came out and was very critical of this roundup over the weekend saying, oh, they're just trying to pull votes away from us. They're just trying to to tap into those same sentiments that we're tapping into. And what about the the heart of the problem here? And that is, as Greeks see it, the, the problem of illegal immigration. I mean, the geography of Greece alone, one would think, would make it very difficult for the, the borders to be well policed. I, I think it's very difficult. When you think about the geography of Greece, the islands, I think that it makes it an, an attractive and, relatively speaking, easy port of entry into the rest of Europe. One analyst told me he considers it a national security problem, not because he thinks uh, terrorists are coming in with these these immigrant flows, but simply because the immigration problem is causing such a like breakdown of society and a social cohesion issue that uh, you know that there's a feeling that Greek society itself is beginning to fragment. The world's Clark Boyd, thanks. You're welcome, Lisa. Well, it's a frightening time now for immigrants. Greece's religious minorities have long complained of discrimination. In Greece, church and state are one. And the Greek Orthodox Christian Church dominates many spheres of public life. One result is that Athens is the only European capital without an official mosque. Matthew Brunwasser has this story. The Greek constitution says that while Orthodox Christianity is the prevailing religion of Greece, the state guarantees freedom of worship for all faiths. But it doesn't look that way to many who aren't Orthodox Christians. Like Muslims here in this unofficial basement mosque in Athens. The Greek government has not allowed an official mosque to be built in Athens since 1821. Ziad el-Sharqawi, born in Athens to Egyptian and Lebanese parents, says freedom of worship doesn't mean the same thing for Christians and Muslims. The difference is people pray in churches, and I pray in an um, underground basement, you see. A 1936 law requires houses of worship to get a permit, which Sarkawi says the government won't hand out, at least not to Muslims. So this mosque is one of dozens in Athens alone operating illegally. The government plan to build an official mosque has been stalled for more than a decade. At a nearby cafe... Some local residents say they're unhappy about their Muslim neighbors. Christina Yanaki has lived in the neighborhood for 35 years. If they build the mosque here in the neighborhood, I would oppose it along with many others. But if they want to build it on top of a mountain, I would have no problem. I don't have anything to do with them. I see them with their big families and screaming children all the time. The neighborhood isn't like it used to be. 
The battle over the Athens mosque has been complicated by Greece's problem with illegal immigration. Thanos Plevris is a member of parliament from the governing right-wing New Democracy Party. He says he fully supports freedom of religion, but allowing this mosque to be built is a bad idea. I don't want to, to send the message to the illegal immigrants that here in uh, Greece we are a friendly place for the illegal immigrations. We have a huge problem with immigration. We have to solve this problem and then we can solve this problem with the freedom of, of the religion. Human rights groups say the issues are separate and it's not just Muslims facing religious persecution. Panayota Dimitris, a human rights activist from the Greek Helsinki Monitor, says pure and simple, church and state are not separate in Greece. Not every state has to be like France, but no state should be like Greece. Greece is a state that has nothing to do with the criteria of state neutrality vis-à-vis religions and respect of religious minorities that exist in all other European and North American countries. One key example of that lack of neutrality, he says, is the oath taken by Greek parliamentarians. Lots of places have lawmakers swear in with a holy book if they choose. But this swearing-in ceremony of the Greek prime minister in June was done in front of a group of black-robed Greek Orthodox bishops. Dimitris says no other European country would have high-level clerics officiating a state ceremony, the kind of thing which does happen in places like Iran. The legal status is not the same for every church. Catholic priest Theodore Contidis. The Orthodox Church is a state church, and is the most important and very close to the state. For all other religious communities, something is problematic. As a result, Contidi says, a Catholic bishop is not recognized as the CEO of all the churches in his diocese. Paperwork and property decisions are a big headache. Panayota Dimitris, the human rights activist, says the idea of Greeks being of different faiths is foreign to Greeks, so foreign that religious minorities are dealt with by the foreign ministry. Even with religious minorities, on serious issues, it's a division of religious minorities in the Ministry of Religious Communities, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that deals. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs knows better about minorities. Demetrius admits there have been some improvements in recent years. Laws preventing the opening of new temples of other religions have been relaxed or abolished. And while the law criminalizing proselytizing by other faiths remains on the books, it's no longer enforced. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Athens. Greek Muslims practice their faith in basement mosques. We've got a slideshow from Athens at theworld.org. Our GeoQuiz and Global Hit coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, fighting domestic violence in the Palestinian territories. And later, singer Daniela Nardi is on a mission to spread the music of her ancestral homeland. I think that people, when they, when they think of Italian music, they think of O Sole Mio or they think of Louis Prima. You know, they don't realize that there's this tremendous Italian songbook. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Today is day 12 of the Olympic Games. Let's catch up on what's been going on with the world's Alex Galifant, who is in London. Alex, we hear there's a hint of scandal today. Yes, a whiff of scandal. An Italian athlete has been caught doping ahead of the race he was going to be taking part in at the Games. Uh, his name is Alex Schwarzer, and he's the defending Olympic 50k or 50 kilometers race walk champion. He won that title four years ago in Beijing. And now Italy's Olympic Committee has withdrawn him from the country's team because of this failed doping test. And I guess he's admitted to taking which drug? It's a blood-boosting hormone commonly known as EPO. Uh, The doping test took place in Italy before he arrived in London, so London's organisers will be relieved about that at least. You know, so far these games have gone pretty much untainted by doping offences. The head of Italy's Olympic Committee, Gianni Petrucci, told Italian TV that Schwarzer had admitted to taking EPO, and in the wake of the failed test, Petrucci said it meant one less medal for Italy, but more cleaning house. Um, by the way, Schwarzer, the athlete, he's a policeman. So make of that what you will. How about um, actual sporting action in the Olympics? How are we doing? And by we, I mean completely parochially the American teams. <laughs> well, you remember that Gabby Douglas won the all-round gold in the artistic gymnastics last week, while the U.S. scored a gold in the women's individual floor exercise today. And that was won by Ali Raisman. And more gold medals, I have to say, Lisa, for the host nation today, for Great Britain, including one for Sir Chris Hoy. We have Sirs over here. He won the Kirin cycling race in the Olympic velodrome. And that means Sir Chris is now Britain's most successful Olympian ever with six gold medals. I know that's not much to the Michael Phelps of the world, but six gold medals. (laughs) Um, That makes him arguably the greatest sprinter ever in the history of track cycling. Yeah, but how's he doing in the water? He's a very good cyclist. (laughs) (laughs) Not a bad way to go out. Not a bad way to go out at all. This is probably the end of his cycling career, at least in the Olympics. I've got to tell you, there was a TV camera trained on Chris Hoy's mum all the way through his final gold medal winning race. And it's probably my highlight of the game so far. She's looking at the village of the track. She's hiding her eyes. Then she takes another glance and then she covers her eyes again. And it kind of goes on throughout the race. It's it's fantastic. So the Brits are still doing pretty well. How about your, your great sporting rivals, the Australians? Well, on the show yesterday, Lisa, I had a little bit of fun at Australia's expense because the Australian Olympic team isn't doing as well as they have in Olympics past. But today we saw the end of one of Olympic sports' great rivalries. Again, this is in cycling uh, between two sprinters, Vicky Pendleton of Great Britain and Australia's Anna Mears. Now, in Beijing four years ago, Pendleton took gold, but today it was Anna Mears' turn. And so she's added to Australia's medal tally with a really well-earned gold. Maybe that'll make Australians a little bit happier anyway. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, in all seriousness, Australia is home to an incredibly rich, proud sporting culture. And some of the newspaper coverage over there has been pretty harsh. Australian athletes may have been winning more silver and bronze than gold in London, but there's there's no shame in that. They're, They're doing great. That's right. Put four journalists in a rowing boat and see how fast they go. Yeah, exactly. Not fast at all unless there's a drink at the end of the course. (laughs) Thank you very much. The world's Alex Galifant in London. Thanks. Thank you, Lisa. China is doing some soul-searching about its Olympic glory. So far, Chinese athletes have won the most medals at the London Games, and they took even more gold home today at table tennis and gymnastics. But China suffered a big disappointment. Liu Zhang was the favorite to win the 110-meter hurdles, but he crashed into his first hurdle during a heat and left the stadium in a wheelchair. 
For the Chinese, there was a lot riding on Lou. Raymond Lee is the head of the BBC's China service. He's been monitoring Chinese social media, such as Weibo, that's the Chinese Twitter, and he detects a more forgiving attitude than he's seen in the past. I would say most people on Weibo are saying、uh, it doesn't really matter, and、uh, Liu Xiang still the hero in their mind. Very positive messages, but then. On the other side, I would say less than half of、uh, the users would be saying, "Well, he's a cheater. He can't win the game. Maybe under pressure, and so probably at this stage, it's better to do、uh, opt out of the game out of injury." But then, of course, that's only one speculation. In the larger picture, do you see that maybe the Chinese watching the Olympics? Are changing in a way to become more sympathetic and less embrace that culture of winning at all costs. I think one change probably I've seen so far is last time round, most Chinese people at Beijing Olympics they were very much as concerned about the number of gold medals they you know won. But this time round, I think increasingly more and more people in China realize. It doesn't really matter how many medals you've got.、Uh, what matters most is the way you, you know, get your medals. So, give us an example of that. Well, one of the hot topics in China is talking about whether it's worthwhile for the government, for the whole country, to spend so much money to nurture the gold medalist. Whether you should be better, you know, spending that money. By developed more、uh, sports facilities in some rural areas, versus than, versus what? What happens now? The government they are investing a lot of money to nurture, you know, the gold medalist, and then to start training them from very young age, say from under ten even. And、uh, some of the training by Western standards could be quite cruel in a way and very pressurized, such as what. Suffer some pains, or you will be、uh, subject to、uh, very tough training、uh, set up by the coaches、uh, throughout the day, and I mean that kind of thing. But then it's also fair to say, if you look at the other side, many of those、uh, young children being sent to those、uh, sports academies, they are from the rural areas. So, which means the living standard of their families are not that great.、Uh, perhaps the whole family will be relying on the success of their kids in sports to get more money or to have a better life. So, you can see where the pressure would come from for them to succeed when they get into world competitions, including the Olympics. Why do you think now that that kind of mentality is changing to the extent it is? I think in the way that the opening up of the social media in China does make some sort of, a, I would say, contribution to that. Social media. How, social media. How would that change? You're talking about Facebook, Twitter, or Weibo,、okay. which is the the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. Yeah, because now people can access to different opinions, to different sort of, I would say, West media's coverage of the Olympics than before, because in the past they would rely on the domestic state media in China, and then they suddenly realize that oh, in Western countries, it's not about winning the gold medals; it's more about making your ways and approach right to get it. Does the kind of sentiment that you're seeing on Twitter, the growing sympathy, 
could translate eventually into a, a different kind of reception when they do come home? Um, the, actually, it happened already uh, in China this time round. A, a woman, a weightlifter, tried three times to you know, lift the weight and then failed. And then at the very beginning, some state media in China describing performance as a shameful, you know, the shame of the country. But then very quickly, a lot of users on Weibo kind of criticizing what the media said. Uh, so in the end, uh, one of the newspapers came out apologizing to the athlete and also to the country. So you could say uh, the social media opinion influenced the public will one way or another. Nice to speak with you, Raymond Lee, uh, the uh, BBC's China service. Thanks a lot. Welcome. Thank you. Palestinian human rights groups are demanding that their leaders do more to stop violence against women. That call comes in the wake of last week's gruesome murder on a Bethlehem street. There were two similar killings recently in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Activists hope that the cases will raise awareness of the problem of domestic violence and the need to reform divorce laws. The world's Matthew Bell has more. The victim was 28-year-old Nancy Zaboon, a mother of three young kids. Their father, Nancy's husband, is the suspected killer. What made the murder so shocking to so many Palestinians was that it took place in the middle of the afternoon in a busy Bethlehem marketplace. One week on, a steady stream of grim-faced visitors strolls by the scene of the crime. They ask shopkeepers if this is really the spot where Nancy was murdered. A young woman in a flowered headscarf grasps her cell phone nervously. She says her name is Hawaida and that she feels nauseous just standing here. She says she saw everything. After it had happened, right in front of me, I became very sick. I saw him as he pulled her against the wall and put the knife against her neck and killed her. He her like a sheep. She only screamed once. And after she died and blood was gushing out, he stood and no one talked to him. He he was saying, I'm a policeman, I'm I'm a policeman. Witnesses said Nancy's 33-year-old husband, a former Palestinian police officer, waited there until he was arrested. Now he's facing murder charges. Kifa Zaboun is Nancy's cousin. He tells me the family knew the couple was having problems. We knew, we had heard that he was abusing her, but not with the details that we found out later. We knew that she had asked for a divorce, and we had thought that this is the end of the problem. Zaboon goes on to say that people should be happy. If couples are not happy together, they should get a divorce, he says. The problem is Palestinian laws don't make it easy for a woman to divorce her husband. Khawla al-Azraq runs a women's center in Bethlehem. She says Nancy came to the center in June and she asked for help. Her only hope, she has one dream, that uh, to get divorced from this uh, man and to have a separate house with her children. She, all the time she was worried about her children. I don't want to leave them. I want to stay with them. This is the own dream that she, all the time she's talking about. Last year, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas signed a decree to put an end to an old law that allowed so-called honor killings. That's when a relative kills a woman for bringing shame to the family name. But Al-Arak says Abbas needs to send a much stronger message that violence against women will not be tolerated. Some say an average of one woman every month is killed by relatives. 
al-Arak and others want Palestinian leaders to come up with new, tougher laws against domestic violence and a new divorce law as well. To change people's mind, you, you need uh, 100 years. But to, to, to have this kind of legislation, this is forced men to think enough before they kill a woman that I will spend all of my life in prison if I do this kind of crime. Law is the main protection for women. But if we need to, to wait until we do this social change, many, many women will be killed. Activists say another problem is that Palestinians don't have civil or family courts to handle divorce cases. It's the religious Sharia courts that have jurisdiction over these matters. Samud Damiri is a prosecutor at the Sharia court in Ramallah. She is well aware that women's groups criticize the religious court system for being too slow to grant divorces. We are a court. We have procedures. And Nancy, she's a wife and also her husband, uh, also a person. And we have to hear them because we are a judge. We are a court. Damiri says she agrees that laws need to be updated. But the root of the problem, she says, is social, not legal. Women seeking to divorce an abusive husband often don't get support, especially financial support, from their relatives. So they're stuck. Damiri says she sees it happen all the time. The women in Palestine haven't any financial protection, and this is the most problem in Palestine. And she returned back because her family can't give money to her or to her uh, children's. And she told me, I have to to return back to my home. Demiri adds that the case of Nancy Sabun has nothing to do with honor. This was a murder, she says, plain and simple. Sabun's cousin tells me that's exactly right. He says the family has written to the Palestinian president asking him to make an exception to current practice and impose the death penalty on Nancy's husband. If justice is not done for this murder, he says, Nancy's relatives might take the law into their own hands and seek retribution against the husband and his family. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Bethlehem. We are looking for one of the great cities of Italy for today's GeoQuiz. Start off in Rome, then follow the coast north, and you pass the hills of Tuscany. Then you come to the great mountains of Liguria. In between the jagged mountains and the azure blue sea is a narrow strip of land. The hillsides are crowded with terraces, thick with vines and olive trees and tiny fields of wheat. One city dominates this region of Liguria. The city's nickname is La Superba. It was once the center of a powerful seafaring state, a medieval commercial empire. Its most famous son was none other than Christopher Columbus. We'll hear more about this storied city through music in just a few minutes. Listen up. The answer's in our global hit. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The voice of Paolo Conte looms large in the Italian songbook. Conte is a musician and composer. He became famous in the 1960s and 70s for his romantic and wistful songs. Here he is singing one of his signature tunes, Via Come, or Come Away With Me. Via, via, 
neanche questo tempo grigio, pieno di musica e di uomini che ti son piaciuti. It's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, good luck my baby, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, I'd remove you, chips, chips, Paolo Conte's music and persona are so distinctive, there are some singers who hesitate to take on his songs. But Canadian-born jazz singer Daniela Nardi took on the challenge. Here's her version of Via Come. Via Via, e anche questo tempo grigio, pieno di musica, e di uomini che ti son piaciuti. Wonderful, 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 good luck my baby, that's wonderful, wonderful, it's wonderful, I dream of you, chips, chips. Daniela, when we hear uh, kind of your muse for this album, Paolo Conte singing, he's a whole lot of man. And I wonder if when we hear you singing, it seems to me you're a whole lot of woman. And I wonder if, if that's kind of the way you normally sing or if that was your special intent to uh, counter or compliment him in this album. Definitely the latter. You know, it's, it's like you said, he he's a big personality, you know, he and, he and it's very, very male. And to try to be like him or to try to uh, find where he's coming from w- with his songs, I think would have been just a cheap imitation. Right. So I. I I need to come from something that's true for me. And what about his feminine side? What about his female side? So why don't I try to tap into that? I thought a lot about the um, Italian actresses from the 60s, like Sofia Loren and Anna Magnani. Like, that would be the kind of woman that could <laughs> stand up to him and that could really go to toe-to-toe with him. So, so yeah, I tried to find that place within myself in, uh, in order to uh, perform these songs. And is that what, did you have them as kind of, you know, your own um, muse as you sang in the studio? What was, and you were, we should say you recorded this in Umbria, so you were in Italy, you were surrounded by some really great musicians. Yeah. Did you, you know, have images of either literally or figuratively Paolo Conte there in the studio? No, actually I didn't. I didn't want anything, any reminders of him. How do you keep away from that? I mean, you grew up with the music. (laughs) I grew up with the music, but I wanted to make these songs my own, right? So even though I I kind of knew these songs, and obviously I knew the language because I grew up with the language, I really worked hard to divorce myself. And it doesn't sound easy because, yes, you're right. I mean, subconsciously, I mean, it's it's in me. But I, I really tried. I really tried hard to just imagine as if I wrote these songs and what these songs mean to me. Then take us through, Daniela, maybe one particular song and how you made it your own. Well, something like like Gioco d'Azzardo, which is a game of chance, it's a song about uh, a lost love. So I really tried to, like, like an actor, you know, tried to go upon uh, personal experience and see if there was something within my past that I could, uh, I could relate to this song. And that's exactly what I did. And lo and behold, there, there, there was someone, there was someone in the past that uh, was the one that got away. And I just brought my personal experience to it. Let's hear a little bit of it. Gioco d'Azzardo. Io parlo di me. Pero tra noi 
just struck me. You found, uh, you know, you were thinking of like an old romance. And isn't that your husband, Ron Davis, playing piano there? It sure is. Yeah. Anything wrong with that picture? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing at all. Nothing at all. You know, things happen for a reason, right? So it's all it's all good. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, reason for doing this album? You call it Espresso Manifesto. And Espresso because... Well, that's like the ultimate Italian symbol, just saying the word espresso, I mean, just the way that rolls off the tongue and just the image itself. And and manifesto, I mean, what I was really inspired by, and yes, I'm Italian, I I like to call myself... Italian 2.0, right? Because I'm uh, a child of uh, Italian immigrants, born and raised in in Toronto. Now as as 2.0, I I wanted to contribute to the culture, to to move us forward, to do something contemporary. And I love Paolo Conte, and I thought this might be a really good start because no woman has ever taken on the challenge of his music, and it's fresh. And so the manifesto part, kind of, you think of that as sort of a set of beliefs or a credo. Is your credo in these songs of Paula Conte? As a mission, definitely like a mission to showcase the uh, the wonders of, of this music, particularly the Italian songbook. I think that people, when they when they think of Italian music, they think of O Sole Mio or they think of Louis Prima. You know, they don't realize that there's this tremendous Italian songbook. Um, so, so yes, the manifesto is my mission to try to to showcase the, the tremendous music that, that exists. Well, there's some really fun songs here, and you can you can hear the landscape of Italy in each of the songs. In one, in fact, uh, uh, Genoa, which is Genova per noi, is that correct? Genova, yeah, Genova per noi. Yeah. Per noi. And we are now going to incorporate you in our geography quiz answer, Daniela. Our answer today <laughs> okay. is Genoa. Tell us about this song and tell us about this place. It's a beautiful place. It, it, it's like the, it's the southern corner of Milan, Turin, it's one of the major economic centers, and as it was explained to me, it's this place that Italians look up to. You know, it's like this little piece of paradise. So, in this song that uh, Paolo Conte wrote about uh, Genoa, he's comparing them to the rest of the country. You know, so the rest of the folks are saying, "Oh, well, the people in Genoa are like they're they're in the sun, and they have this this, this special location. And are and it, are we anything like them? Maybe we're nothing like them." But then towards the end of the song, Paolo Conte is saying, you know what, we are like them. We're all, we're all the same people, and uh, a little piece of them exists in us, too. We're going to end, in fact, with that song. And Daniela Nardi, thank you for expressing your manifesto through Espresso <laughs> Manifesto. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Solo in piazza, rare volte resto pioggia che ci bagna. Genova dicevo, un'idea come un'altra. The album is Daniela Nardi's Espresso Manifesto, The Songs of Paolo Conte. You can watch videos of both Daniela and Paolo at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.